Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Climate change will make more parts of the world uninhabitable, leading to a massive wave of human migration. ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine have developed a model showing how people are likely to be affected, focusing first on Central America and how people could move across international borders to escape extreme weather and hunger. Tens of millions of people are expected to make their way to the U.S. by 2070. We learn what their models show the impact will be, depending on our environmental and immigration policy. And we're joined by Abram Lustgarten. He's senior environmental reporter for ProPublica. Abram Lustgarten, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So when we talk about the world becoming more uninhabitable, what do you mean by this? By, by how much? Well, a recent study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences analyzed where people have lived on the planet for the last 6,000 years and found that the majority of them have always existed in a, what, a fairly, what is a fairly, fairly narrow band of temperature range. Uh, so there is a, an ideal environment that people thrive in. And they found that over the next 50 years or so, up to 2070, that band is going to shift dramatically northward. And uh, temperatures outside of that band will increase to uh, the extent that uh, parts of the planet that are extraordinarily hot now will expand to cover about 20% of the globe from about 1% today. Can you say more about these hot zones? I found it so fascinating to read about just extreme the uh, conditions are in them and how much, as you described, they will grow. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, separate research talks about what they call wet bulb temperature, which is the the intersection of heat and humidity and finds that in some places, uh, northern India, uh, eastern China, uh, by 2100, it'll be too hot for people to spend time outside. Uh, lower degrees of wet bulb temperature will soon make it difficult for kids to play school sports in the summer months or for laborers to work outside. So uh, temperature is increasing to the point where it's difficult for the human body to cool itself by sweating. And what you see is in developing parts of the world, um, long before you get to those extreme levels of heat, uh, increasing heat and decreasing water supplies will make it more difficult to grow food. And it's that food insecurity and increasing, you know, questions about uh, where basic nutrition and water supplies that will come will come from that will ultimately drive large numbers of people to reconsider where they live and begin to migrate in search of better conditions. And for this first piece you did for this climate migration series, you focused on Central America. Can you talk about what's happening there and why Central America? Yeah, there, there's a number of global hotspots that would have warranted our, our focus. We focused on Central America in part because it's physically connected to the United States here. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but also Central American countries will bear the brunt of some of the most severe climate change uh, and, and heat change and water decrease in the future. 
Uh, and and already uh, people in Central America and Guatemala in particular, where I focus my reporting, are um, seeing dramatic changes in their ability to grow food uh, and in the nutrition that they gain from that food. Um, malnutrition rates are, are increasing. Um, uh, childhood uh, malnutrition bordering on starvation is increasing to a heartbreaking degree. And, and what I found in, you know, in my reporting there is, is that this is already a factor uh, driving people to decide to move, driving some of the migration to the United States and, uh, and was likely to increase. So it was a really good place for us to begin to ask the larger um, questions about, you know, bigger trends over the coming decades. And can you talk about some of the people you met, what they're going through that, you know, really hit you, it sounds like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm not a migration reporter. I've reported on climate for, for many, many years, but um, uh, but but less so uh, migration. And so I went down to Guatemala and to El Salvador and to Mexico, you know, really expecting to analyze people's decision making. I wanted to kind of understand, you know, how their, their columns, pros and cons and how you make difficult decisions to leave home or to uproot your family or to leave your family in many cases. And um, what I basically found, which which was just incredibly surprising to me, was that uh, the people who were moving didn't have a choice. There were no columns or pros and cons. They had uh, resisted moving as as most migrants do um, until the last possible moment. I mean, their their preference is always to stay close to home, to stay close to family, uh, and that by the time that these migrants who were leaving for food insecurity reasons were actually choosing to migrate, um, they they were doing it out of the, the most basic need to to survive, and it was really heartbreaking. And and family upon family, and in village upon village, in rural parts of these countries, um, were just scrounging enough enough food to to get by feeding their kids one tortilla a day maybe with a sprinkle of salt on it mm. um like like nothing i'd seen in that region ever before and so when people would move they would head to the cities it was usually out of rural areas heading to the cities well there's a pattern uh for global migration driven by climate and driven by all the other things that do drive um, migration, and that's that you know people tend to move from the most rural areas towards more populated areas first, and it's um, you know researchers call it stepwise migration. Uh, there's a a growth in uh, local urban areas first, then large cities second, uh, and then uh, an extension of of that migration, you know, across borders into other countries. And so uh, in Guatemala, some people were skipping this step and and moving, you know, directly towards the United States or directly towards Mexico, but the majority were um, moving out of the countryside and moving to Guatemala City or in El Salvador, moving to San Salvador. And they were doing that in the hopes that it could be a short-term uh, change. Again, you know, with uh, uh, an expression of their reluctance to move and a desire to stay close to home. So maybe you can move to the city and make a little bit of money for a couple months and move back and that'll fund your your next food crop on your land or or something like that. And, and again, it's only, you know, to move further and farther, uh, you know, is only uh, a decision that many make out of out of pure necessity and last resort. And have the cities been able to handle um, more people coming in? Well, rapid urbanization has been uh, a, a phenomenon globally and uh, and certainly in Central America for a long time. And it's due to many causes, in, including uh, climate and, and the increasing food insecurity that I was focused on. 
it's strained many of these cities already. Uh, what you see, you know, in Guatemala City and in San Salvador is, you know, uh, growing um, slums or poor areas on the outskirts, which is where, you know, many of the people with the least resources tend to wind up. Um, and, you know, that already stresses, uh, stresses infrastructure, it stresses governance in these places. And, and that's what uh, researchers that I spoke with project will, you know, will increase dramatically that those stresses that exist now, uh, even in cities that have been, quote unquote, you know, able to handle that influx, um, you know, however, uh, however, you know, difficult it, it may have been, uh, will face such large increases in that urbanization rate in the future um, that it'll really threaten to, to destabilize those places further. And by destabilize, you mean just in terms of resources, infrastructure, uh, politically even? Yeah, yeah. So, so rapid urbanization uh, tends to concentrate uh, poorer people in in those slums in the outskirts of some of these uh, uh, very quickly expanding cities, and uh, the less resources those concentrated uh, populations tend to have, the more they uh, not only suffer uh, with a lack of food and a lack of sanitation and uh, a lack of infrastructure and resources, but the more that they also uh, become hotbeds for the kind of dissent that can politically destabilize countries or, uh, you know, even, um, you know, uh, different political movements or terrorism. Uh, it, it's a it's a pattern that uh, the United Nations, that the American Red Cross uh, are cautioning about, you know, from North Africa and South Asia to, to Central America as well. Yes, because in your experience, how were people who were moving from these rural areas received in cities, especially if it started to feel like there was pressure on resources or growth of slums, as you say? Yeah, I mean, that varies uh, enormously, and it, it partially depends on luck, and it depends on what skills, you know, a migrant might bring to the city, but they're, uh, you know, and I'm not sure that I have the, you know, the expertise to to generalize, but um, but some of the people that I that I followed, for example, a woman who had moved to, to San Salvador from rural parts of, of El Salvador, uh, had certainly experienced, you know, quite a bit of, um, of uh, you know animosity towards her as as sort of you know a, a simpler uh, you know agricultural country person who had moved to the city and didn't have a lot of uh, you know a lot of fine skills um, and and was seeking employment and was drawing on you know on local resources um, there there did seem to be at least in her case you know some prejudice uh, towards you know the the you know farm farm worker migrants who were coming into these cities. We're talking with Abram Lusgarten, senior environmental reporter for ProPublica, about global migration due to the effects of climate change, and specifically his reporting in Central America, where a lot of pressures are already being felt, a lot of uh, issues with weather and climate are being felt as well. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions for Abram Lusgarten? Can you imagine this world that he's describing where there are so many parts that become uninhabitable and it will result in what he's written as one of the largest, the greatest wave of human migration the world has seen? The number to call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email us at forum at kqed.org or you can reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. And of course, Abram Lasgarten, you've talked about um, how we in the U.S., both 
the role that we have played in some of the issues that Central America is experiencing, but also how we could be deeply affected. And so could you talk a little bit about that and how you modeled or the modeling that happened related to the kinds of decisions that the U.S. makes and the kinds of attitudes the U.S. has towards people migrating north? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so we built a, a computer model that attempted to take the uh, many, many uh, inextricable and intertwined uh, factors that influence migration, climate and uh, economic policy and stability of governance and economic growth and uh, environmental concerns and family connections and social webs and, and all of those things and try to predict a little bit, uh, not only you know how people would move and in what numbers, um, but how uh, different responses to those trends would lead to different outcomes. And uh, basically the model uh, considered two different categories of information. It uses the uh, United Nations uh, climate projections for carbon concentration, which is a, a measure of, of climate change, and uses the United Nations um, uh, socioeconomic pathways, which are uh, several scenarios that uh, project different directions that the world could go in in terms of globalization and economic growth uh, and so forth. And um, some of those socioeconomic uh, pathways assume open borders and, and some assume more closed borders. And what the, the modeling essentially found is that the, uh, the more open the borders, the less uh, pressure on uh, countries of Oregon, origin, countries like, like uh, Guatemala. And so we might see um, you know, very large and increasing numbers of migrants coming to the U.S., which presents um, uh, uh, a slew of, of both opportunities and challenges. Um, but that to the, to the degree that uh, we might close borders or restrict migration, that could lead to uh, significant increases in suffering in, in Guatemala and in El Salvador and those host countries as um People remain there. Uh, birth rates tend to increase with lower socio with lower economic growth. Uh, uh, so the population gets larger. Poverty increases. Um, food availability does not improve from its current situation. It continues to get worse, and so you see larger uh, degrees still of suffering and and eventually starvation. Um, on on the flip side, uh, allowing some movement, allowing some you know sort of freedom of choice for for people that are seeking to improve you know their life circumstance, um, you know presents uh, uh, opportunities and and potential stresses in the United States too, as you have a large you know potential large increase of, of population, it will require uh, you know housing jobs, uh, infrastructure in, in the cities where people go to. And uh, the model essentially found that to the degree that uh, that destination places can plan for and anticipate those changes and prepare for them, um, there's a, a smoother uh, glide path into the future. And to the degree that those things are not planned for, um, it's a, you know, it's a recipe for increasing um, stress and strain and conflict. So destination places like the US. And so I guess, my question is, you mentioned that there are both opportunities and challenges. Um, can you talk about what the opportunities are? Sure. I mean, the United States is a, a, a nation, you know, um, formed by uh, by migrants, uh, whether, you know, Irish migrants or European migrants or, uh, you know, or Mexican or Guatemalan migrants. Uh, we've all, you know, come from somewhere or have roots somewhere. Uh, the United States also faces, like most of, uh, you know, 
northern developed countries, Europe and Russia, a demographic decline. Um, our, our workforce is aging. Our own uh, birth rates are, are falling. Um, and there's an opportunity to, you know, to accept uh, new people. Um, uh, the researchers I, I spoke with, the, the documents I read, I mean, they, they they describe it as uh, "quote unquote" human capital, um, a bit of a cold term, but um, but you know whether it's it's labor, you know, capital or cultural capital, uh, uh, bringing in new populations is a an opportunity to revitalize and um, you know and and uh, sustain economic growth for the future. And and based on your research, are we doing the things necessary to, as you say, prepare um, for? to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that come along with increased migration. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that hasn't been the, the central focus of the reporting I've done so far. But uh, but suffice to say, uh, we and and much of you know of the northern developed world has done uh, you know surprisingly little uh, on this front. Uh, you know, so so uh, we obviously have our own you know infrastructure and growth challenges in American cities, regardless of, um, you know, the question of, you know, an influx of new populations. And at the same time, we, you know, have been cutting uh, the sorts of, of aid and help to, uh, you know, to foreign countries that can directly affect some of the issues that we're talking about. Um, you know, the the, uh, the GAO just came out with a report a week or two ago looking at, uh, you know, how the United States had cut its U.S. aid program for agricultural programs in Central America, mm -hmm. um, programs that, you know, might uh, substitute, uh, you know, water-resistant crops for uh, some of the maize crops that, that the subjects of my story were having difficulty growing. Um, and that's the type of aid that would, you know, help uh, help people uh, avoid the need to to migrate. Um, so it's really a two pronged um, two pronged challenge: whether we prepare at home and and whether we prepare and aid you know communities abroad. And uh, we're not really doing either one at this point. Yeah, and if anything, it feels like we've had a strong you know anti immigrant backlash here and and uh, and abroad around the world. I mean, when you're talking about nationalist views and and even governments um, being taking more power uh, globally, it does feel like the trend line isn't great. And the other thing that I feel like I'm hearing in what you're saying is that even hardening our border and maybe pushing the mass suffering, you know, <laughs> into Central America or staying in, in Central America doesn't help the US either. It's not like we wouldn't be affected by that either. Yeah, you know, there's, um... Uh, a, a quote at the end of my story in one of my last interviews, uh, you know, about how, you know, it, should we, you know, resist that that kind of movement of populations, you know, that eventually we become, you know, sort of the people pushing, you know, other others out of the lifeboat, out of the lifeboat, and you know, we can wall ourselves in as as well as wall others out. So, you know, it, um, you know, the world is complex and and globalization is complex, but um, you know, uh, it's not clear that an isolated, uh, you know, confined um, wealthy, you know, United States is is much better for, you know, for the United States than than an interactive uh, one with with open borders. We certainly see around the world already, uh, you know, this, this reaction to the potential for large scale migration, um, being an increasing nationalism, uh, you know, an increase in, uh, in hate and prejudice, uh, you know, that migration is a factor in driving um, Brexit in the UK, uh, the, you know, the German government, 
attempted to be a, an example for uh, you know a more open um, and accepting uh, community for migrants coming you know out of Syria and out of North Africa and and uh, you know is experiencing a, a political backlash there as a result. Um, so it's not not really clear that you know that uh, the reflexes of societies facing these challenges um, you know have have the capacity yet to uh, you know to go in a uh, in a peaceful or accommodating direction. We're talking with Abram Lusgarden, senior environmental reporter for ProPublica, and you, our listeners, let me go to some calls. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. Drew in San Francisco. Hi, Drew. Hi. Thank you so much for this insightful research. Um, you know, one of the aspects that's interesting to me that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is specifically you're calling out that, you know, the United States is going to be um, quite affected by this change globally um, through, through, you know, accepting migration or just even impacted in our food systems or manufacturing. So I guess what are your thoughts on changing hearts and minds when, you know, this is going to be one of the groups that's maybe uh, last affected by some of these changes, but um, ultimately uh, still quite impacted? Drew, thanks. Abram? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure uh, what you mean by which which groups would be last affected. Um, uh, in terms of the actual impacts on the U.S. that are as severe, say, as we see in Central America, I mean, we may not feel those effects directly on us for some time. But but I think Drew's question is is just about we. If I'm paraphrasing correctly, Drew, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, but that you know until we do. What is a way to change hearts and minds around understanding kind of, I think we're all in this together. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, just to take a, a giant step back, uh, you know, I think that we are at a stage uh, where we see and, you know, and, and the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is, is a great lesson in this, where we mm. start to see that we can predict and shape and describe um, enormous challenges that are headed for us uh, with certain certainty. And we have an opportunity to prepare and consider their many, you know, and varied implications. And so, uh, you know, I like to think about the the current pandemic as, as a lesson in what happens if you don't begin to, to wrap your head around what those implications are and, you know, and the validity of, of some of the science that, you know, would compel some kind of response. And so when, you, when I think about like changing hearts and minds, um, it, you know, it's it's not just about uh, expanding sympathies towards uh, towards foreigners or needy people, uh, you know, who, who might want to share in resources, but um, but in in you know creating a greater openness to considering you know the the breadth of of the challenges and the very real you know implications that they will have uh, you know on our economy, on our freedom of movement, on our you know, on our own, uh, you know, kind of economic well-being. Well, Drew, thanks for the question. And let me bring Tom from Los Gatos. And hi, Tom. I mean, I'm uh, really enjoying your show. It's very informative and entertaining. Um, I just wanted to say the problem isn't the it was Central Americans or uh, Mexican farmers who've been put they've been put out of business, you know, by our trader reapers, especially millions of corn farmers, Mexico and Central America. Uh, due to our highly subsidized uh, farmers here in this country uh, flooding their markets uh, with American uh, corn and other agricultural products. So it's really it's a political problem and a financial problem more than a climate or social problem. Uh, you know, 
agriculture is only 2.2 percent of our economy in California. Yet agriculture pretty much controls, uh, you know, the the uh, Sacramento and the Vast Water projects that were talked about earlier, uh, which are just you know to benefit the uh, farming community, agribusiness, and not uh, thirsty people in the cities. Uh, the problem is the farmers are gobbling up, uh, drinking all of our water, not uh, immigrants coming in and drinking our water, making artificial water shortage that way. So uh, unless we can get rid of the corruption, the corruption in Washington, Sacramento, and all of our state governments with uh, large agriculture, but uh, it's not really large anymore. It's only, like, like I said, 2.2% of our economy here in California. And uh, also the Central Valley is, what is probably the most depressed region in the entire country. Is even poorer than uh, you know deep south uh, states like Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, well, Tom, Florida. Yeah, really appreciate you he- sharing your perspective, and I just want to quickly see if Abraham Lascarten has any response to basically. It sounds like in in some ways the agricultural decisions that we've made here in the U.S. affecting people in Central America. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, part of what you're getting at is how incredibly uh, inextricable these issues are and complex and, you know, how many driving factors there are. Uh, As it happens, the next story in in my series looks at some of these pressures in the United States and how Americans uh, themselves will be, you know, maybe push to confront both climate change and the need to, to move to different regions. And the kind of issues that you're describing are, you know, are some of those push factors, but they exist, you know, just as much in, in Guatemala and El Salvador as well. I mean, Guatemala, uh, as much as I found deep, deep and growing, you know, food insecurity in the communities there, um, the country is producing, you know, more food than ever. Uh, and, and it's partially because there are large corporate growers uh, who are, you know, using the local resources to produce crops and, and partially because because most of those crops, uh, that essential food supply is going to, uh, you know, to buyers in the United States and elsewhere. And, um, and that's an example of, you know, of, of not necessarily something that, uh, you know, is inherently wrong or, or comes from any sort of, you know, malintent, but, um, but, uh, you know, is having an effect on, you know, on global food availability uh, for local populations and and might need to be one of those things that is sort of re-engineered or, or reconsidered as you look to, you know, how to confront, um, you know, and, and adapt to, uh, to, you know, to climate change over the next several decades. Well, let me thank Tom and uh, just try to get a couple of comments in here. Ron writes, please talk more about how climate change is involved in the migration. I mean, I think it's an interesting point. I mean, what proportion of people will migrate because of climate? Because people migrate for so many reasons. Yeah, so absolutely. People migrate for uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, we found, you know, that that climate is a, you know, is a relatively small proportion of those, uh, but that it will become an increasingly significant uh, factor in the future. Um, still, perhaps maybe not a predominant factor. Um, but we also found that that, that climate plays, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, in some cases, uh, undefinable, but, um, but still, uh, you know, has a substantial influence in the many reasons why uh, why migrants do move. So so to say, you know, that someone moves for economic opportunity or because violence pushed them out of of a place, uh, that there may also be and often are, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, climate drivers uh, underlying, you know, their their original decision to move or their instability. So uh, so our modeling projected that you know climate migrants that we can attribute primarily to or exclusively to, to climate as a push factor might grow to about 5% of the total uh, number of migrants coming from Central America to the United States. And that might seem like a small number, but when you're talking
talking about national populations, it's actually pretty huge. Um, but we also found that the overall number of, of migrants that were uh, going to be headed northward grows as climate change um, increases, as temperatures increase and carbon concentrations increase. And that suggests that while we can't attribute, uh, you know, all of those migrants to climate or say exactly what proportion, you know, or how they're influenced by climate, um, that climate is uh, playing a role. Well, Abraham Muscarton, really appreciate having you on today. Thanks so much for your reporting on this and looking forward to more of the series. I don't want to, I don't know if you want to leave us with any final thoughts about what you hope your reporting will accomplish. We just have 20 seconds. Well, again, I think it's just incredibly important to prepare if you can realize that one third of the planet's population is going to face an existential challenge in the locations where they currently live and will uh, likely be you know, forced to either adapt or to or to move and to begin to consider what kind of broad challenges and preparation that requires for, for the rest of the planet. Abram Lasgarden of ProPublica, Judy Campbell produced this segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.